we'll have time afterwards for fellowship or I guess not. We'll have time afterwards for our congregational meeting. So uh, I want to welcome you all, whether you are a visitor or you've been with us for a while or you're a member of our church. We're glad that you could join us on this Sunday morning as we worship our risen Savior. Um, if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 19 through 30. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles provided for you underneath the chair in front of you, and there you could turn to page 920, 920 of the church Bibles, and there you could look at, uh, you could follow along with us. I'm going to invite David Noble to come on up. His family are members here at our church, and he also uh, works with First Light uh, Ministry here in St. Louis. And so if you want to know more about it, we do share about it every now and then. But uh, we want to hear from him as he reads for us this passage. And if you've ever wondered the word Christian and where it comes from, well, we come upon that passage here this morning, a word that we use often but we don't probably think about. Uh, it happens here at the Church of Antioch. And so we're going to... Uh, learn more about that. So follow along as we hear from God's word. Speak to God. Thanks, David. Pray with me. Lord, we come before you and we give you thanks for your word to us. Thank you for as we've been going through this story of Acts and the story of your church. Uh, Lord, won't you speak to us as we learn more about this church in Antioch and how, Lord, even today, how, how it applies to us so well. And so, Lord, we want your spirit work in our hearts so that we might reflect who we are in Christ, that we are Christians. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the interesting things that I've always found fascinating about our city of St. Louis is that at one time, the city of St. Louis was much larger, larger than the city of Chicago. That St. Louis was the hub of commerce and trade, of culture, of business, of even science and healthcare and education. I don't know if you know this, but St. Louis was actually the largest railroad hub in all of the U.S., in the Midwest specifically. And so because of this major railroad hub that made its way from the East Coast to the West Coast and back, St. Louis was a lot larger in the 1800s than Chicago. But there was a shift, and there's many, I did some research and I went down this rabbit trail of all the different reasons of why there was a shift of St. Louis declining and Chicago growing. Well, one of the reasons was that something that would have been completely unforeseen, the Great Fire of Chicago, when that cow tipped over that lantern and it burned the city of Chicago down. But out of that fire, they were able to redistribute or figure out the boundaries of Chicago and extend it larger. And from that, they were able to build a larger railroad system so that instead of St. Louis being the hub for transportation and business and commerce, it became Chicago. And slowly over time, by the late 1800s and into the 1900s, it shifted from St. Louis being a larger city to Chicago outgrowing and outpacing St. Louis, where it became the hub of culture and of the greatest sports team ever. <laughs> Don't worry, not the Cubs, the Bulls and the GOAT, Michael Jordan. 
right? It, it became that. And the reason I share that this morning of this shift of from St. Louis to Chicago is because in this story in chapter 11, as we continue to learn the story of the church, is that there was a shift of Jerusalem being the hub of faith and of Christianity to Antioch. Now, it made sense, right? Jerusalem was where Christianity was born and, and the church was formed when Pentecost came and the outpouring of the Spirit came upon the people who were in the room praying. It was where Jesus died and rose again and he did his ministry and he ascended into heaven. Jerusalem was the hub and center of it all for Christianity. But as we look at this story this morning and what David read for us, what we see is that it shifts to Antioch because Antioch becomes a place where for the first time ever, Gentiles who had no idea or understanding of Judaism, of the Old Testament scriptures, the gospel enters and it becomes the hub for the rest of the Gentile world to come to know this beautiful gospel story that we believe in. Now just think about that for a moment. From this moment that Antioch and the church is formed, over centuries and centuries, and through different movements and hardships and persecution, we are recipients of that here in St. Louis. In 2023, we have received the gospel because of this shift from Jerusalem to Antioch, where this Gentile church that had no understanding of Jesus and of even Judaism comes to faith, and they become the hub for the rest of the gospel and the churches to spread all over the world. And so what I want us to do this morning is just briefly look at what can we learn about this church, this pivotal moment in the life of the story of the church and of Christianity, what can we learn about Antioch and this church? Well, there's three things, like all good pastors do. The first thing we see here is that it is marked by persecution and hardship. Right away as we read verse 19, what do we see? Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now, what we have to recognize here is that this church in Antioch is birthed out of persecution, out of suffering and hardship. Luke is taking us all the way back to chapter 7, where Stephen is martyred and he's stoned to death. And because of that suffering and that persecution, the Christians have to flee. And they go to places like Cyprus and Phoenicia and Antioch. And here, because of the suffering and persecution, we get to see the joys of the gospel spreading to a place like Antioch. Now, I think what we have to see here is that none of us, none of us enjoys or would ever write a story of one of hardship and suffering, right? Even this past week, as you heard last week, we had that crazy storm come through. And as I was in that really dark and horrible place in my mind and emotionally, sitting there wanting to just give up on life, seeing our just water rush in through the window, I was not in a good place. And it's just like, why? Like, why, God? None of us wants to write those kind of stories of, of 
of suffering and hardship in our lives. But isn't that the way we grow? Isn't that the way of life? Trials of job loss, of broken relationships and friendships, maybe not getting into the school that you want, car accidents or flooding. Those are the ways that we grow as human beings, isn't it? It's through persecution and hardship and suffering. My daughter, who's in the children's worship, she turns 10 today, or she turned 10 today. And what's so fascinating about a child is that when they're 9, they want to be 10, double digits. Or if you're 16, you want to be 18. And if you're 18, you want to be 21. Well, in a recent This American Life story, this is what they reflected on. For adults, it's terrible getting older. The disappointments, letdowns, but no child believes that. They want to get older. Nine is going to be the greatest because they think life is going to get better and better and better the older you get. But we grown-ups, we know better. Or we think we do, or at least we think we need to think we do. Isn't that true? But often we forget that it's from persecution and hardship that when we're birthed from that, we actually experience joy. That even through the flooding of our basement, the joy and the beauty of recognizing that there were so many people where our fuse keeps tripping because we have so many dehumidifiers and fans plugged in. The beauty and generosity of people that continue to ask and text us and say that they're praying for us. These are the beauties that we get to experience that are birthed from hardship and suffering. And that's true of Antioch. The joy that they experienced was because of the suffering that they experienced through the persecution. Part of the suffering was part of God's plan to transform their broken lives. And it wasn't in vain. And we're not promised to know and understand why we experience suffering. But here in this story, we're given this to us so that we're reminded that God is truly about redeeming and changing and healing broken sinners and that no suffering can stop what God wants to accomplish in our lives. In other words, there is no pain without a promise. There is no hurt without hope. There's no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. And Barnabas, when he comes to check out this church, he has so much joy that is overflowing from his heart because he recognizes that out of the suffering and persecution of the church, as they scatter, this church has formed and the gospel continues to spread. The first thing we have to see here in this church and in our church and in our lives as Christians is that it is birthed from hardship and suffering. But second, the second thing we have to see here is that it is marked, this church is marked by maturity, by maturity. With the scattering of the, the disciples and the Christians as they scattered to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, what's interesting about this story is that where do they go to share the gospel? In this story, what we read is they actually go to the Jews. And the Jews would have understood and connected Jesus, or the Christians would have been able to connect Jesus to the Old Testament. Because the, for the Jewish people, they had an understanding. They had the synagogue culture they knew the old testament stories and scriptures of god and of the prophets and of the priests 
They understood that, so they went to the priest. But here for the Christians that were in Antioch, they didn't get that memo. <laughs> Guess what they did? They went to the Hellenists. Now, who were the Hellenists? Well, the Hellenists were people that did not believe in the Old Testament. They had no understanding of it. Judaism was not part of their upbringing. They didn't have that youth culture where they, oh, I remember when I used to go to the synagogue and I hung out with my youth group and we went on a mission trip to Chattanooga. They had none of that. You know, it's kind of like the Northwest, if you were to kind of tie it into today, or in the Northeast in New England, where you talk to some people and they have no concept of Christianity. Some have argued that it is pre-modernity or pre-Christian. One of the best examples is some of our missionaries that we support, right? The Congdens. And we support the Adotas. Well, I remember when the Congdens came and they showed some of their videos, they went around to Japanese people and asked them or showed them pictures of celebrities, right? Like, I don't know, Michael Jackson or Madonna or famous celebrities. And they were able to recognize these celebrities in our Western culture. But then they would show a picture of Jesus. And Almost all, 99% of them, had no idea of this picture of who Jesus was. These are these Hellenists. They had no concept of Judaism, no culture of, of being in the temple. And these Christians in Antioch go to these Hellenists and begin to share about Jesus. Share the good news of the gospel. And what happens? They start believing. And it's like a wild storm. And Barnabas is just teaching and, and, and preaching and discipling them. Well, they continue to grow. And so what does he do? He recognizes, well, I can't do this alone. And that, that's something for us to think about, like to recognize your limits. Me as a pastor to recognize that I can't do it all. And in humility, Barnabas recognizes I can't do this. And guess who he calls out? He calls Saul, the one that Jesus met in Damascus Road, persecuting and killing Christians. He's like, Saul would be perfect for this. So he, call, he goes to Tarsus, brings them back. And for one full year, in verse 26, we read that they taught and they spent time discipling and teaching and preaching of the gospel, maturing these Christians and growing them to become more and more like Jesus. What caught my eye, especially was verse 23. This is what Barnabas does. When Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I love that. I shared that with our officers at our session meeting. But what he does as he sees this anomaly, right? This doesn't make sense. The Jerusalem church brings Barnabas to Antioch to say, like, is this actually happening? Like, it's not Jews, but it's actually true Gentiles who, have, who do not fear God, who have no understanding that they're becoming Christians. And Barnabas sees this, sees the grace of God. And he was glad. And what does he exhort them with? To command them and encourage them. He says to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Man. That's maturity in Christ. That's a goal. That's the purpose of why we are called Christian. To be able to grow and, and look more and more like Jesus. To spend time in his word and in prayer and in community. And to grow together with steadfast purpose to remain faithful to the Lord. 
What, what Barnabas is encouraging the Antioch church and us is to make sure that your roots of faith go deep. That your roots of faith are nourished, that they grow, and, and you do everything in your power to make your faith durable, sturdy, and resilient, mature, so that when you actually go through hardship, when you go through suffering, that you're able to stand firm with steadfast purpose and to remain faithful. I think a lot of times when we think about maturity or what it means to have Jesus in your life, I think we, we think about it like in, in, in this, in this like uh, a grid, right, of like saying, well, Jesus has to be the most important thing in your life. And then second should be maybe your family. Then third is church. Then school for you students, right? Make sure school, maybe, maybe two after Jesus is school. But then, you know, and it's just this, this kind of this chart or this rank of how, where Jesus and our faith should be. But I've been telling my kids lately, especially our oldest as he's about, you know, I've only got two more years with him. I'm like, that's not the way to think about your faith. It's not this, this ranking system, but it's in every aspect of your life, school, your work, your relationships and girls or sports, like in all of those areas in your life, is Jesus impacting those areas? That's maturity. That's discipleship. As we think about uh, the Supreme Court's ruling of, of colleges and thinking about uh, affirmative action, how do we think about that as Christians? What does the gospel and our Christian worldview speak to that? It's complicated. And if you just have one pat answer, then I think we're not thinking through it in a, in a gospel-centered way. What do you think about your relationships, in your dating relationships, with your spouse or your children, in your workplace, with the frustrations of it all? How does Jesus enter into those areas and speak into it so that we might be transformed in a way that looks different from the rest of the world? And that's why it's so important for us to find ways to grow and deepen our walk with God. To put ourselves in places where your faith will be sturdy, be nourished, and where your faith will grow, where your roots of faith will go deep. That's why we offer things like what you just heard, the book studies. That's why we offer community groups in the school year. And that's why we have Bible studies for men and for women. These are opportunities for us to mature in Christ. But the last thing we have to look at here is not just suffering and hardship or maturity, but this church in Antioch is marked by generosity. We see that in verses 27 through 30. It's fascinating, right? Because I think when you think about discipleship and maturity in Christ, it leads this church to radical generosity. And it's actually a beautiful sign of maturity in Christ that they're able to give and give and give. Now, what happens here? Well, in verses 27 through 30, we see this prophet Agabus come to Antioch from Jerusalem. And he prophesies that there's going to be this, this famine that comes. And so he warns them that especially the people in Jerusalem and in Judea are going to suffer. 
And so what happens? In verse 20 or 29 and 30, they gather together and the disciples determine everyone according to his ability. Now remember that. We looked at that with Barnabas and, and Ananias and Sapphira. It's not done out of compulsion or coercion. They, they each figured out according to their own ability how much to give. And they sent relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. That's amazing. Because what we see here is that Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas and Saul to immerse Antioch with the gospel. But now Antioch, the church returns Barnabas and Saul, overflowing in their arms with gifts and money to support the work of getting through this famine. This is the radical generosity that we see here. And we cannot miss this theme that we've seen through the book of Acts thus far. It's this beautiful theme of generosity. And you can't just think about it in our context where Christianity is the majority culture. You see, the church in Antioch was a small, marginalized, socially powerless group living in one of the greatest, most powerful empires in the world. And they changed the world because of their sacrificial giving. One commentator who wrote a book on ethics in the book of Acts says this, they practiced a radical generosity whereby goods properly existed for the benefit of the whole, not the individual. This form of generosity is in many ways more challenging than a rigid system of rules. It calls for ongoing responsiveness, mutual involvement in the lives of community members, and a continual willingness to hold possessions loosely, valuing the relationships within the community more than the false security of possessions. And over and over again, this marginalized, powerless, small group of Christians radically gives, considering nothing their own, and it transforms this Roman Empire. I think we need to wrestle with that today, don't we? In a culture marked by a pursuit of personal wealth and comfort and security, how could this kind of radical generosity stand as a witness to the kingdom of God and form a completely different, plausible alternative way of flourishing and of human life? That's the question for us. Are we marked by this kind of generosity in our church? That, that beautifully gives a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like today and forevermore. That's what these Christians were doing in Antioch. These Christians were marked by suffering, by maturity, and by generosity. And I told you earlier that this is where we first get the word Christian. And this word Christian that we see in verse 26, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Before this, they were called disciples, believers, brothers and sisters, belonging to the way, saints. And it wasn't abnormal for them to call them Christians. And the reason for that is because there was actually people that followed Herod. And guess what the people who followed Herod were called? Herodians. Right? You add the I-A-N-S. And so for these, these 
pagan people who were Gentiles and Hellenists who had no concept of Judaism or the Old Testament scripture, when they kept hearing about Jesus Christ, they didn't know Christ was the term for Messiah. They just heard Jesus Christ. And they're like, oh, that's his name, Jesus Christ. So we're going to call them Christians because they follow this Christ. It's kind of like when I grew up, I loved the movie Karate Kid, right? And guess what his name was? Daniel Sun. And I have a love-hate relationship with that movie. I love the movie, but then I got the brunt of being Daniel Song and a lot of just racist hate and comments towards me, especially in middle school. But anyway, that's besides the point. I thought Daniel San's name was, his last name was San, right? Because I didn't know Japanese culture. And so like that, these Hellenists in Antioch were like, oh, Jesus Christ, we're going to call them Christians. But it wasn't just a way to identify them, it was a way to put them down. It was a way to mock them and ridicule them while the church continued to grow. And this was what they began to call them. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful reminder for us because as we reflect the name Christian of Christ, the one who suffered, the one who experienced so much hardship in his life, who was flogged, who was spit upon, who had no place to rest his head and was homeless, the one that was jeered, this Christ, the one who was committed to making us more like him, who says that he will finish the good work that he's begun in us, the one who spent day in and day out with these disciples, though they were so, so dumb, so foolish, That he was yet committed to see them grow and understand the kingdom and understand God in an intimate way. And this Christ, who literally gave his life away for us because of his incredible love, who died for us, that kind of generosity. This is the one that we follow. As Paul reminds us, He says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. We are called Christians. Does this name reflect us in our hardships, in our maturity as we grow in Christ, as we practice generosity? Do we look more and more like him? May it be true of us as it was for the Christians in Antioch. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the name that you have given to us. Though it might be weighty, though it might feel like so heavy, because, Lord, we cannot be or do what you have done. But thanks be to God, Lord, you have given us everything that we need, that though we might not be able to be perfect in our generosity and our growth, Lord, that we might not be, we might complain in our suffering. Lord, you did it perfectly for us, and you have given us your righteousness. You've given us yourself to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, you would help us to lean into that, that you would be our strength, that you would be our guide, so that we might be able to more and more reflect the name Christian that you gave to us because of your son who suffered and died on our behalf. Lord, may that be true of us even as we come to the table now, as we remember your suffering, as we remember your generosity. Lord, help us to be able to be 
followers of Jesus who are faithful and diligent. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.